0: The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data. Stay tuned for their message on cloud security. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Labor Department will consolidate its acquisition services into one office. Deputy Secretary Patrick Pazella says his office has been working to merge acquisitions, HR and IT services since he took office in 2018. GovExec reports the shift toward shared services is part of the president's management agenda. Former Deputy Director of National Intelligence Sue Gordon will take on a new role at Microsoft. Microsoft's Vice President of Customer Security and Trust, Tom Burt, says she'll consult on security, national security, and leadership. FedScoop reports Gordon resigned from ODNI in August. Postal Service has bad numbers about the amount it saves by cutting pay for new workers. The agency reported about $10 billion in savings from fiscal year 2016 to 2018, but the Government Accountability Office estimates it's only $8 billion at most. GovExec reports the Postal Service didn't count the costs of turnover and extra overtime. The Office of Personnel Management is taking a little longer to process retirement claims. Its December figure was 66 days on average. That's up from 62 in November. Jessica Clement is Staff Vice President of Policy and Programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. Uh, Jesse, welcome back. It's great to see you again.
1: Good to ha- be here. Thanks, Francis.
0: Is this a big deal? It doesn't sound like it's a tremendous growth. I guess any increase is not what OPM or retirees want, but it doesn't sound like this is a huge jump.
1: I don't really think it is. Well, let's talk about what it should be, mm-hmm. right? The goal is 90% of cases processed within 60 days so basically what this is telling us is that the average processing time for December was 66 days mm-hmm. now not all cases are gonna be processed within 60 days just 90% of them mm-hmm. right so this is it is higher than November I reached out to OPM to find out why okay so is is this a big deal mm-hmm. what they said was A lot of the cases that were closed in december had been open for a significant period of time disability cases for example take on average i think about 130 days those cases cases were closed in december thus increasing the average across the board
0: it's it's to me this it reminds me of looking at the tsp like every day (laughs) this is not really what you're going for day to day today it strikes me the important thing is what would, what did the claims process look like two years ago what did the claims process look like five years ago and are we making broad long-term changes that bring the backlog down you think i'm looking at this i think
1: you are and i went back and I, and i looked and opm publishes data that goes back 15 months so we have month by month since october of 18 and since october of 18 The current state of inventory right now, or as of the end of December of 2019, was just shy of 17,000 cases. A steady stream of inventory is 13,000 cases. So OPM right now just shy of 17,000 cases. That is the lowest number of pending cases since the uh, recently available data, which is October of 18.
0: So overall, even though the numbers month to month may look like a little bit of a bump, this is a success story, it sounds like. This is a, a good thing overall for people who are retiring or thinking about retiring and wondering what kind of confidence they should have in the way their claim will be processed.
1: I think if you're one of those people who got your retirement check in under 60 days, you're you probably, these numbers don't matter <laughs> right? You, right, you don't care. If you are one of those people, and I was talking to a woman just the other day um, whose husband retired less than a year and a half ago, it took him seven months to get his full retirement check. So, mm-hmm. you know, where you... How it impacts you depends on your, your viewpoint on this. I don't really think it's anything, at least not to be alarmed of.
0: Uh, we talked a little bit before we went on the air about the fact that in less than two weeks, I guess, two weeks, we're supposed to have the White House's budget right. request. February 10th is the date that OMB says the yes. document will be out. You you said you think it's coming February 10th. You're the first person I've met in Washington that thinks that it will be. You out made of
1: February an optimist 10th. out of me. I think we need I've, to we need to note this. Never today. heard of that never. before
0: in the ten years we've known each no.
1: other. No, um, so I have no reason to believe it's not. It was supposed to be February 3rd, mm-hmm. um, it's the first Monday in February. Um, OMB came out a few weeks ago and said it's going to be February 10th. They have not said anything to the contrary at this point in time. So, you know, we at RFR are preparing for the budget on February 10th. Mm -hmm. Fully expect it to contain cuts to federal employee and retiree. Benefits the way it has for the last four years. Uh,
0: is, do you expect to see anything different, though? Are you hearing anything different than what has been in there in the past? Well,
1: if I had that sort of inside knowledge, I'd be somewhere else talking to somebody <laughs> else about That's this. That's not come on nice, now, Francis. Come on. No, I love it. I wish, I wish I had inside knowledge to share with to share with your viewers, um, who I appreciate um, everything you do for them and allowing me to come on your show every other month. Um, but no, at this point in time, I. I know past past performance indication of future performance yeah. right and the past budgets have contained cut after cut after cut to federal compensation. I do think the wild card here is the federal employee pay raise, and that's something we are going to be keeping a very close eye on. Why
0: do you think that's a wild card? Just because of what happened this past year where yeah. there was a freeze and then all of a sudden the biggest one in years? In or- a
1: decade, yeah. So the president's last two budgets, I believe, um, supported a pay freeze. Mm-hmm. The president reversed course in August and talked about a 2.6% pay raise, um, federal employees ultimately got an average of 3.1% in January, um, or this month actually. So you look at the employment cost index, which is how private sector wages moved in the 12 months prior to the president's budget compilation. Per that formula, um, it's called the ECI, employment cost index, private sector wages moved 3% in the 12 months prior to this. So naturally, you can expect the employee groups, NARF included, or at least NARF, just speaking for NARF, to support a 3% pay raise. It's gonna be telling, does the president support 3%, does he support the ECI minus half a percent, which is um, the statutory formula, is it 25 is it something less than that? knows
0: um i have a note here that one of your priorities is the windfall elimination provision which i've never heard of before never no
1: never i gotta get the retirees to pay attention to the show a little bit more closely so the windfall elimination provision reduces social security benefits um, of individuals who worked in public sector jobs for which they did not pay into social security Mm -hmm. Um, This is, as you may imagine, a big deal for a lot of NARF members. Uh, There are two competing bills in Congress right now that would reform that penalty. I mean, For a lot of people this completely, this can completely wipe out any Social Security benefit um, that they've rightfully earned. Um, So we are working towards a bipartisan solution. There's also pending legislation to completely repeal the windfall elimination provision, which is obviously, um, you know, an end goal here in this political, this fiscal environment, something like that isn't incredibly likely. So we're focusing on moving the needle a little bit as it relates to reform.
0: Jessica Clement, thanks as always.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Up next, new laws for privacy and consumer data. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a new California state law could mean changes for federal agencies everywhere. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The new California Consumer Privacy Act is the first law in the United States to establish a set of rules for consumer data. It's similar to the General Data Protection Regulation the European Union passed. The law could complicate the data landscape for federal agencies that operate all over the country. Brian Boxman is Vice President of Federal at Talend. Ryan Swan is Head of the Federal Practice at Calibra. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Ryan, why should somebody working with data in the federal government Mm -hmm. care about a law that passed in California and theoretically applies only there?
2: Yeah, well, thanks for having us. I think that it's an important point. Uh, federal government has more data about citizens uh, as they provide citizen-facing services across a number of of sectors, and a lot of the technology that's used in the government um, are from companies that are that are based in in California and in other places around the country. And so, as we look at the various regulations that are happening, whether it's California or a number of other states that have passed or are passing similar regulations, I think federal government uh, professionals and and, and decision-makers have to consider um, the implications of that on on the data that they they use and house for various citizen-facing services.
0: What are you Um, seeing as far as the way that agencies are trying to approach these various data issues with the states, Brian?
3: Well every day, government agencies and practitioners are concerned about trust, privacy, accuracy and governance. Mm -hmm. So this is something that's happening. It's it's a groundswell in the government. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first part about it is your traditional process people, now they're looking at tools and automation. So most recently there was a, a federal data act and an action plan that was uh, created for uh, chief data officers to follow, and it's a 20-step action plan, and that's being implemented as we speak.
0: Mm-hmm. What, do you, what do you think the the gap is between what federal agencies should be doing when regulations like this, I understand a similar law is coming potentially in Maine, there are other places, what's the gap between where agencies are today and where they need to be to comply with these laws or do they have to even because they're the federal government and these are states?
3: Well in preparation, um, the first thing is an accurate and trusted inventory. Mm -hmm. That's, That's obviously critical. You have to know what you have. Um, before you can speak intelligently about it. So that's, that's really the critical part. I think that there's um, a gap in the actual inventory of data and metadata that's available in the government ecosystem. And that's something that needs to be tackled first.
0: Ryan, the good news is that's something that every agency should be doing for a number of reasons anyway, having a handle on what they need, right?
2: Absolutely. And I think that when you look at things like the Foundation of Evidence-Based Policymaking Act that was passed, signed into law uh, by President Trump uh, this January, agencies have to establish an inventory. And and whether you're, you're trying to unlock value for citizens facing services or whether you're the CISO trying to protect the data or whether you're the CTO, Um, trying to make decisions about technology architecture, you have to have a foundation of this is what we have, this is what it means to us, this is who owns it, this is how it got there, Mm -hmm. so that you can make informed decision-making across a spectrum of things um, that that impact uh, our ability for the government to execute.
0: We could get into a whole long discussion about who the right inventory taker is too, (laughs) because some agencies have CDOs, Some agencies have assigned those duties to somebody that already exists. What, what are the ways that you've seen this playing out across agencies so far, Brian?
3: It's played out across a myriad of groups. There's been a chief data officer who has built that function out with tools, process, and visibility. There also is chief information security officers, the CISO. Then there's the CTO. Um, obviously, the CTO worries about architecture, so um, all rolling up to a CIO so it's 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 a large group it's fairly diverse Mm -hmm. and it really hasn't been 100 percent defined yet
0: and is that part of the problem
2: ryan Uh, i think i think so i think the the part of the problem is the complexity of it so you take an organization like Department of Defense or or an organization like Homeland Security where they have a number of levels right you know you have a CDO at the department level each each sub agency would have also a CDO and how those uh, th- those inventories are federated across that organization is is, is challenging right mm-hmm. um, some of the organizations have very siloed, people process technology. Um, but it's not until we, we bring that all together to say agency X or department Y, this is j- your entire inventory. Mm-hmm. And, and, that, and that's part of the challenge.
0: What does a good data inventory look like when it's complete or is it ever complete because agencies are ingesting so much stuff all the time?
3: <laughs> that's a great question because as soon as you have a complete data inventory, five minutes later, when you bring on and onboard new data, uh, yeah. it's incomplete. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So, what a, what a is, what a good inventory looks like is a near real time snapshot of the data that you have um, in your ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of risk associated with data. Uh, folks believe today that it can be, if not managed appropriately, a liability. So, organizations are thinking all the time: How do we make our data an asset? How do we get real-time access to our data inventory and ensure that it's up to date?
0: Ryan, final thought. About 30 Mm -hmm. seconds left. I I Mm -hmm. saw from the notes that uh, Maine is considering a law like Mm -hmm. California has. There are others. Mm -hmm. Washington. Do they all all look the same right now or similar enough Mm -hmm. that once you understand how to comply with California, you should be able to uh, comply with the other states as well? I
2: would say somewhat. Mm -hmm. Um, There are definitely differences in definition. So the, the one that's recently proposed in Washington has very, various different definitions of what they consider sensitive data, um, whether or not facial facial technology, uh, facial recognition technology is used. And so there are
0: differences. Ryan and Brian, thanks both very much for coming on. It's great Thank to have you. it a pleasure. You. Thank you. Up next, new standards for agency website designs will give .govs a more common look and feel. Straight ahead on Government Matters, an inside look at what GSA is doing. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The General Services Administration has new standards that regulate federal website modernization, coding, and design. Those standards come as a result of the 21st Century IDEA Act. The U.S. web design system impacts more than 40 federal agencies, with more to come. Cherise Hanner learned more from GSA's Jacob Parcel.
4: Um, the mission of the U.S. Web Design System is to help agencies create better public experiences for their customers. Um, the U.S. Web Design System offers a, a series of user guidance, design principles, and code that agencies can use to implement on their uh, websites. So if I am an agency that is looking to build a new website, I can go to the U.S. Web Design System and learn how to build the website with a user focus, learn how to create and use graphics and some other pieces like buttons in the correct way. So if I'm doing a footer on my website, I can learn how to actually do a footer. Well, when to do a big footer, when to do a small footer. And then I can also leverage code from the U.S. Web Design System to help with things like with mobile friendliness and accessibility uh... for instance you could pull a template from the u.s. web design system that allows you to make the small screen size for your mobile device or the big uh... desktop screen size for desktop computer users
5: So, tell me who are the systems pioneers Where did, when did this start
4: uh... this started back in late 2015 uh... it was a partnership between gsa and the u.s. digital service and what we were trying to do was to try a, to create a similar code base for uh, a few projects we were working on together, and we had noticed that design systems exist in the private sector. A design system is just a way of uh, an organization, company, um, having a common code base so when they build uh, digital experiences, they look the same, they have the same look and feel, and people within the company don't have to recreate the wheel. So what we were trying to do back then was come up with a similar concept for government. And over the years, it's become very popular. We currently have over 40 agencies using the US web design system. And we've built from just like some very simple code to actual uh, design principles, uh, user guidance, and we've built upon those different uh, types of code.
5: So tell me more about some of those agencies. Do they reach out to you? Do you all reach out to them? And are you all working towards reaching out to more agencies?
4: Um, I think what uh, w- it's it's sort of every way <laughs> to it. answer your question Got very it. easily. So we do reach out to agencies and part of any work or any uh, practice we do in TTS um, like my colleagues in 18F, my colleagues in the Centers of Excellence when we build a product for an agency we're using the U.S. Web Design System to so, folks are getting that right out of the box. Um, But we do have a community of developers that have reached out to us for help on certain elements of the US web design system. When we build out the product, when we talk about our design principles, we've worked with our federal web council and some of the folks who do a lot of digital experiences across government. Um, And then we come up with ideas ourselves that we test on the rest of the uh, communities. But it's really a combination of different uh, ways of agencies use them. We also have agencies just go to the US Web Design System website, pull some of the code, and use it, and then tell us down the road, like, oh yeah, we implemented this website using your code, and we used these pieces, and we thought these were good, it'd be nice to see some updates on these, and that's how we hmm. run the system.
5: So prior to 2015, what were agencies using for code, or best practices, or design?
4: Um, good question. Yeah. Um, I think we would, I, I would say they were, they were using what they could find. Gotcha. So, you know, if they were working internally, they probably had some best practices they were using. If they were working externally, they were probably relying on whatever organization was helping them build their website's best practices. Um, and some were good, some were not so good. And what we were trying to do, and what we've tried to do over the last four and a half years, is to build a common look and feel where an agency can come in and really support its mission by using the code basis. So there's over hundreds of different color palettes and things now because we know agencies want to come in and sort of have their look and feel because National Park Service probably has a different mission and color scheme than Customs and Border Production. So we find agencies have these needs and these mandates for different colors and things like that. So we just want to make sure that they have the ability to meet their needs so they can really focus on delivering on their mission.
5: Tell me a little bit more about 21C.
4: Ah, 21C. So what she's referring to is the 21st Century Digital Integrated Experience Act, which was passed in 2018. Um, There are a a number of sections of that law. Uh, What applies to the US web design system is section three, which is about website modernization. There are a number of elements that agencies have to focus on, and I'll name a couple of them, but they definitely should look that up, Um, you know, when you get a chance and anybody in your audience should take a look at that and see some of the other things that it covers. But in website modernization, I have mentioned mobile friendliness, Uh, uh, accessibility in section 508 are important. Agencies should have websites that are searchable. Agencies should have websites that have a common look and feel. They should be customizable and a number of other things. Within that act, um, the Congress uh, required the uh, Technology transformation services to uh, create a web design standard, mm-hmm. and we took that to mean the U.S. web design system. So, what we did, as I mentioned before, we've par- we partnered with a lot of agencies. So, we partnered with um, more than forty agency digital leads to talk about what this digital standard should be these website standards should be from section three e of the uh, integrated digital experience act and what we came up with was the website standards which we actually just released a couple days ago um... within that what we're asking uh, we think agencies should do is they should use the u.s. web design system maturity model and the u.s. web design system maturity model is three things it suggests that agencies use uh, design principles, how to really make a website for your users, user guidance, how to actually make your website look good. So if you're using a footer, how should you use that footer where the guidelines are around that footer, and some of the US web design system code that I mentioned earlier. And what we're really focusing on with the website standard is really continuous and iterative improvement. Um, We really want agencies to, when they look at their website, look at your design principles, design your website, but then go back to your customers and see what's working, what's not working, and then improve upon that, and then improve upon that, and improve upon that. So we don't see a website as one and done. We see a website as something that's continuously improved, Mm -hmm. continuously updated, continuously pleasing your
0: users. To see that conversation again, or any other conversation, visit govmatters.tv. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available as an audio podcast now. You can get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn, or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data, presenting this message on cloud security. I'm
6: Government Matters Director of Content George Jackson, here again with Sean Applegate, Chief Technology Officer at Swish, and Jeremy Castleman, Cloud Security Specialist at Checkpoint. Sean, you offer something called Infinity Total Protection. What does that involve? The Infinity Total Protection provides a per-user
7: pricing model for end-to-end security fabric. And by this, I mean your firewalls, your VPN, your IPS, but also your cloud security, your endpoint security, and your application security. What this provides is a very well-rounded protective fabric that's got a single pane of glass, so it's easy to reduce your operating costs. For small to medium agencies, this is extremely valuable. It also means a predictable cost over a multi-year period, which often can save an agency 20 to 30 percent of their total cost investment in security.
6: Wow. So, talk about that nexus there, Jeremy, between security and operational value. What should our listeners know here?
3: Well, as Sean mentioned, the ease of management is great, but it also provides you that full spectrum of the Checkpoint software portfolio. and This gives you a uniform security posture across your entire environment, and it keeps we keep it up to date with the latest uh, Gen
6: 5 advanced threat protection. Hmm. So what about endpoints, Sean? How does this affect or impact visibility? At the endpoints where your users sit
7: is often the first point of attack. Having the protective fabric, the sandboxing on a phone or an endpoint allows this fabric to discover zero-day attacks extremely quickly in a endpoint sandbox, explode those devices, find those first-day attacks or zero-day attacks, feed them into a threat intelligence cloud, and then inform the rest of the fabric in near real time. What this means is a small to medium agency can have an attack identified intelligently at the edge and
6: then notified and updating the whole fabric as a community, so a much more proactive approach. Great info. Sean, Jeremy, thanks again for being here. For more, head to govmatters.tv swish. I'm Government Matters Director of Content, George Jackson.
0: Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.